Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We ready? Yep. What are you asking me? <laughs> oh, very good. It's very good. It's actually live. Uh, welcome to welcome to the Work Podcast. Um, we are in Goldtop Studios in London's Swinging Chalk Farm, uh, and we come here to to um, be with Neil Brockbank. Hello. Hello, Neil. It's, it's very kind of you to let us into your salubrious little audio Hello. home. You're to illustrious your, organ. To your scrubbed wooden floors. And we're, we're going to be talking about everything to do with recording studios. Everything. Uh, well, you're yeah, pretty much everything. We have to cover everything right. in the next half hour or so. Yeah, where they come from, where they're going. And Mark and I, just a little issue on where they've come from. We noticed this afternoon that on this day in 1963, bit of a quiz here. Mm-hmm. Do you know what happened? What happened on this day in 1963, which pertains to the history of recording? So Dave asked me this earlier today, and I got it almost right, because I said it must be something to do with the Beatles, because yeah. that was the only interesting thing that was happening uh, in February 1963, and I assumed it would be a single. But it wasn't a single, it was, in fact, the first album. They made their first album. In 12 hours. Well, now, was it, would it be 12 hours? Because in those days, sessions were three hours, weren't they, or something like that? Yeah, they made it in a day, didn't they? They made it, in th- <laughs> I think Neil is absolutely right to be boring. I think there were three-hour sessions, yeah. and the unions then required you to take a tea break and have biscuits. And they yeah. made it in three, three hours. Three, three hours. But it wasn't over when they left the building because there was still some editing. That's right, a bit of mixing, uh, mixing or yeah. topping and tailing. Yeah. But they were done. case you know because i know we're talking about this for the um you know for this feature in the current issue of word about recording studios when you go back to those days when they were recording you know how much how many tracks were they doing on and, and how much mixing was involved how much kind of jiggery pokery after the event was involved well originally of course you were recording on wire so you couldn't even edit so you, you know that but once you got onto tape you had this wonderful thing you could edit so even though you had only one track, or maybe stereo. Uh, if the take wasn't complete, you could chop one take together with another with a razor blade. Right. So that was their main production technique. It wasn't you know, overdubs, but, but they could still edit from one performance to another. Right. Uh, uh, and, and when the Beatles were recording, they were recording on, on two track, which meant that they could sometimes record something on track one and something on track two, and that would be it. So what would that, what would that generally be? Because I know we listen, you know, very often we, we listen to rather crude stereo remasters <coughs> 60s records, and the thing that always strikes me is that if you turn the, turn the balance to the left, you hear all <coughs> the vocal, and you turn the balance to the right, you hear pretty much all the band. Yeah, because that's the way it was recorded. One, it was. Everything was, all the band was on one track, all the vocals were on the other track. So in Be- terms of 
mixing, there's not very far you can go other than just push once to one side and one to the other. Right, right. You right. see, what strikes me about that, because I was actually at Abbey Road recently, I was telling you this earlier on, I was at Abbey Road recently um, and heard that when they put out the, you know, the masters, the, 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 mm. the box at the remasters, and I sat in the studio that they made those records in on the same patch of parquet floor that the Beatles yeah. were set up on. The room, as you know, is absolutely studio unchanged. Studio 2. They haven't even changed the colour of the paint or anything for, 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 uh, you know, for, for, for sort of reasons that they don't want to mess with the magic, you know. And they played us a piece of uh, talkback, George Martin talking to John Lennon, who is, who is fluffing the intro to Misery. And uh, eventually she says, uh, I say, what, what's wrong? Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> what's wrong, uh, Lennon, Junior? It's like somebody, like somebody talking to the coal oh, man. Yes, I had too many toffees. <laughs> you finish your pork pie and your light ale and get back into the saddle. And Lennon says, oh, it's these damn words. You know, and he's laughing because he's, he's written this song himself. He wrote it, in fact, for Helen Shapiro. And what I love about this is that they're so relaxed, um, even though they've got, as we said, nine hours to produce things. And they've really only got two cracks each song, and because they're recording a two-track, as you said, they've got to get it right. But they've already done their 10,000 hours, haven't they? They've done their... They, they, well, they, exactly. uh, this is the point. Uh, they've been explain, they they explain the 10,000 hours for the benefit of anybody who doesn't, you know, who hasn't read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. That's right. Yeah, he, you know, his argument is to be really good at anything, you know, to, to be an exceptional footballer, the first thing you've got to do is put in 10,000 hours of, of actual practice. And the same thing applies to music. And, and of course, the, you know, the point he makes is the Beatles had done this in Hamburg for yep. two years or whatever. That's right. All those <laughs> nights of playing Red Sails in the Sunset eight times at four o'clock in the morning, full of speed or whatever, and they had done has a, prepared them they for this A lot moment. of playing together, which yeah. is what was required in that situation, because they weren't doing it one thing at a time, like drums, bass, yeah. guitar. They had a lot of experience of playing together, which, you know, not everybody had. Completely. Um, but also, they weren't complete recording novices either. They'd back Tony Sheridan. That's right. Uh, they'd done other stuff, demos, you know. Uh, so they weren't completely green, you know. But also, they had presumably there was a live set, so they, they you know, they knew what it was, yeah. and they could go into the studio and and actually perform it, you know, pretty much as they were doing live. Because one of the things that fascinated me that I found out while researching this was that uh, when Frank Sinatra started recording for Capital, he wanted it to feel as much like a live show as possible. And so they used to set up the studio. Absolutely. So they had a little stage, effectively, in the corner of either Capital Studios or wherever he did his recording in those days. And they put a spotlight on him. Uh, so that he felt as if he was in the club. I could tell you a lot, but you've got to be true to your code. Just make it one for my baby, and one more for the road. And so, and, and they used to invite. They also had an audience. They had, did they have the secretaries? Of they, the, they used to know, call yeah. the, the A and R man who was when he did only the lonely and you know those kind of classic set him up Joe records. They used to make the place feel as much like a nightclub as possible, and then invite right. down the janitors and right. secretaries. Do you think they appreciate it? Maybe the janitor would say, "Look, I've still got a few more sinks to clean." You know, <laughs> Mr. His Mr. 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 Sinatra's in Al Martino. <laughs> no, no, I'm a busy man. <laughs> but it does fascinate me, you know, that idea that it was once, you know, it was about a performance. Yeah, I mean, and, and also they respected the sensibilities of the artist too much, and we got to do whatever. Whatever we, we need to get a performance out of Mr. Sinatra, and I've got a little idea that may just maybe if we get some people in the studio, you know, the fact that they were prepared to indulge him in that way as well is fantastic. They weren't just like technicians, they were thinking about the psychology of how to extract the That's it, it's a bit like a film director, it's about bringing this great, you know, yeah. epic uh, moment out of them. And they're all different, of course. Completely. It? And I always feel really sorry. George Martin told me about watching Cilla Black in the studio, and he's, in fact, I think he produced her, in fact. And, uh, and Cilla Black was only about, I think, 17 at the time. And she's in a little booth like we're in now. And outside the rest of the studio is an entire orchestra. And he knows he's only got two or three cracks in it, because there's only two or three cracks that she's going to be able to take. Her nervous system is going to be able to deal with. And the pressure of her to get it right. I, I, that is absolutely unimaginable now. 
So you know, you can really hear that on those records. You know, which we're going to talk about in a moment. It's that idea that that you know, you, you, where was the point when you you listened to records and you could tell that these were not necessarily musicians playing in the same room at the same time? I wonder when that happened. Yeah, when do you start to notice that? Um, <clears throat> when do you start to well, I think you start to notice it on on certainly on the Beatles records that they're not all playing together at the same time. Uh, you know, once you get past uh, Rubber Soul, it's clear that they're not. You know, you can hear the fact that they haven't all set up in a circle and run no, off no, expect, with the benefit of Mr. Kite. But know, the, the yeah, bass right. and drums are probably playing together, though, aren't they? N not even that, because you know, um, Paul often put the, the the bass on later, played the acoustic guitar on the track, put the bass on later. Uh, so, you know, so it's hard to believe that you hear something like "Come Together" or something that they weren't playing simultaneously. Ah, uh, yeah, that's because they're example. just extraordinary. Yeah, no, that's that, that's back to basics. Yeah, it, it was, it was, because surely isn't that I'm no musician and no producer? Isn't that the magic of recorded music? Is people playing together? <laughs> well, it's part of the magic, and it's it's one of the elements in the cookbook. You know, it's not the only element in the cookbook. You know, I wouldn't even though I'm a kind of uh, live recording specialists and you know I like to get my people together and have them all in a room at the same time it's not the only way to make a good record it's, you know I just don't happen to like those records right <laughs> but right. they're still really good records right right but so the, the, the example that you and I talked about uh, a while ago was um, Roy Orbison it's over oh yeah you know, which is a <coughs> classic example of a record made in 1963 I think yeah. something like that and just explain what's going on when they're making a record there. Well, here they've got a double problem, because not only has everybody got to play it right... And so everybody is what? Roy, his Well, band. Roy, his rhythm section, which is about a six-piece rhythm section. Uh, it's not a huge orchestra. I'd say it's, you know, maybe six or eight strings plus uh, three backing vocalists. Right. So it's probably a total of, you know, 15 people, all, all in all. And so everyone's got to play it right. Okay, that's the first problem. But the second problem is, unlike in the modern world where everything is remixed, the engineers have to balance it at the same time it's being played. And so, what do you mean by balancing? Well, explain. They're, they're, they're sitting behind a mixing desk. They've got a they've got a, 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 a control marked Roy. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, and they've got another control marked bass, and another control marked drums, and another one guitar, piano, strings, maybe two or three there backing focus. They've got all these controls. They're just going to alter them bit by bit until the balance of the thing sounds really fantastic. You know, and when it sounds really fantastic, they know, you know, and it sounds like a record. But they've got to do... They can't wait until the musicians have gone home to do that. They've got to have that going at the same time it's being played. So they're, they're finessing it while it's... it's there's no multitrack. So it's not like the drums and the bass are all being recorded in isolation on individual tracks the way we do it now. I mean, the way we do it, we have this ensemble thing going on, but I don't worry about the balance unless it's just to, like, vibe people up when they come in from the room. But 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 the balance, I know I'm going to get later, but those guys, they had to get the balance right. And if they got something wrong on the balance, even if the music was cool, they'd have to do it again. <laughs> to break your heart and tracks they're recording onto? Well, in the case of the Roy Orbison, it's straight to stereo, effectively. That record is recorded, is on, I think, uh, you know, someone will probably correct me, but I think that record is recorded on a stereo tape with the stereo panning all in place at the same time as it was being played. Because you once played me in this studio, actually. I know you've heard this too, Dave. Heard it through the great... Oh, all right. And that's an eight-track recording. Yeah, well, that's 68. So, so what I was going to say is, late, so right. it was five years later. So the difference there is that on those eight tracks, and they've got um, you know Marvin Gaye, they've got Marvin Gaye in the backing yeah. vocalist, they've got the well, it's a piano, they've yep. got three guitars on one of them, they've got uh, three strings, guitars mixed down to one track, six mixed down to one track. That's yeah. right. But you could still tamper with the individual volumes yeah, of those things. I mean, you? you've got drums, you've got bass, you've got vocal. The orchestra's all on one track. Yeah. The eight track 
tells a story, but you can pretty much take those faders, put them up in a line, and it sounds pretty much like the record. I mean, there's not a lot of mixing to do. But uh, you, can, you can approximate the final mix that was on the 45 using that 8-track thing. You can approximate it in about 15 minutes. You see, I, I, I know it's very easy to get over-romantic about these things, but, but <laughs> when let's. I heard... But let's do it for, <laughs> when Neil played me this thing, um, what we did is we shut all the eight faders down and then he just put each channel up one by one. And one of these channels... and I'm, You can probably... People listening may have heard this because I think it's now kind of available that you can get it on. Uh, yeah, it's possible. It's a bootleg, I know. <laughs> but anyway, one of them is the backing vocal, yeah. which I think is, in fact, <clears throat> Marvin Gaye is one of the vocals. I think and the girl is. singer is the other one. Yeah. And when you listen to this, what you're hearing is the sound of the other seven tracks. We call it spills. Spilling in their headphones. Spilling out of their headphones. As, and you can hear them breathing, waiting to move towards the microphone and sing the backing vocal. And it is just its impossible to get over how electrifying that is to hear because you feel the presence of this record being made. You know, you can feel the ambience of the room, you feel you're there with them, you know. again that George Martin told me because uh, I've talked to him a lot about production it's so fascinating and it's in um, it's in uh, oh I've forgotten now is it Lady Madonna it's Lady Madonna that's right Lady Madonna and they took the backing vocal they made the record very quickly so most of the Beatles records were, were done and he said if you go back as they did when they were making the uh, remasters and go through all the, the different uh, tracks they find John and Paul are sharing a microphone to sing the do 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 you know, the backing vocal and Lady Madonna. And they're sharing on my phone. And when they're so professional, used to this stuff, they know exactly where to come in and they know exactly what they're going to sing. So the rest of the time, they're talking. <laughs> so he says it's, they couldn't believe it. So they're sitting there, they're going, and they're talking about a video, what would we now call a video, that they were going to make the next day in Kent for whatever it would have been, I don't know, Strawberry Fields or something yeah, like that, you know. And they're saying, oh, it would be great. And John, and George, uh, John says something like, yeah, we're going to get some candelabra and some horses, you know, and maybe a piano. <laughs> You know, they're going, and then suddenly this voice comes and says, boys, boys, Lennon, uh, enough of the toffees. <laughs> <laughs> it's him, it's him again. It's that bloke again. <laughs> Put that cigarette out and sing, please. You know, and they sing their backing vocal and they go back to talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea that that's buried in part of the that becomes part of that, the kind of whole history of that record for me now. I could just imagine that going on, you know. The thing that fascinates me, I mean, I, I, following your point about is it romantic or whatever, the thing that strikes me when I think about the Roy Orbison example, and I'm sure there are loads of examples like it, is the studio must have been a very tense place to be. And, you know, it, there is that theory with footballers or actors or whatever that tension is what gets the best out of them. It's feeling that you've got to get it right at this point. Yeah, I'm not sure tension's the right, the right word because I think the sort of people who've been playing on Roy's record would be kind of at least giving an outward impression of being totally relaxed. In order to ensure further employment. And the tension would be all in the mind of the person who was paying the bill. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but, you know, those musicians, they knew they had to be completely on yeah. the money and they, and they couldn't afford to stop halfway through it and, and go, Take a I've got to reach you. No, <laughs> I haven't got it right. You know, these no, are, no, I mean, a, there are a lot of people who reading even on rock and roll records uh, and on those uh, on those Roy Orbison records I would say most of the people are reading right so you're uh, reading the chords the charts the, the, the charts, charts yeah. yeah I mean right. the, but the bass part may be written in conventional notation even not even chord charts you know Right. Uh, you see, I don't know if you know anything about this, but in Nashville, don't they have a number? Yeah, they have a number system. What does that mean? Uh, does well, that mean? it's very simple. So if you're playing in the key of C, supposing just so, uh, then the C chord is the one chord. Right. Okay. So <clears throat> a very very usual chord to go to in C is F. That's the four chord. G. That's the five chord. So it goes C is the one chord. Then B, uh, C. Uh, D, E, F is four, G is five. Are you following this, Lennon? <laughs> <laughs> so, but the advantage of the, the, the Nashville numbering system is if you know that this song goes one four five four one, okay, 
if you want to do it in a different key, it's still one four five four one. It's just in a different key. Right. So if you've mem- if you've memorized the song as C F G F C, and somebody comes along and says we're doing it in E flat, you're buggered. That's right. good. That's impossible. Uh, you're buggered because you can't transpose in your head. But if you know it's one four three, you know that the first chord is the home chord of the key. The fourth chord is the get technical subdominant and the five chord is the dominant right. so so you know instantly you can transpose into any key using the numbering system i mean i as you I make it sound so easy <laughs> as i understand it they even you know people singers in nashville who used to work with pickup bands they would be fingering this behind their backs to the musicians indicate three really? they'd be oh, holding that's, their that's finger wonderful. up three two one and, and and they also could do something else with their other hand to indicate whether it was a major or minor or seventh. You know, uh, so they could effectively sing the song. And I'm, you know, on radio, it's not much good to be putting my hands behind my back, but that's what they were doing. That's really good. I mean, yeah. I've heard that. Whether that's a myth or not, but I've been told But, but you that, could believe yeah. it. I totally believe it. Yeah. Well, listen, totally we, we've, we've, asked, uh, we've asked for uh, various uh, questions from the Massive via Twitter prior to this podcast, and one of them concerns uh, session musicians. And Dan Worth asks about it. Um, you know, how regularly are session musicians called in to play play on sessions nowadays on on band sessions? I mean, well, it's two kinds of artists. It's, it's groups. The beauty of groups, from the record company's point of view, is that they 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 ideally they should be self-contained musical units. In other words, they don't need session players. Right. Uh, you've got bass, drums, guitar, keyboards, whatever it is, and then there's solo artists. Now, unless they're going to play everything themselves, they ain't going to, they've got to yeah, have yeah, yeah. session players in. All of them yeah. have got to be session players. So, uh, and then there's the third category, which is when uh, it's a group, but the producer thinks it might be better if, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, it's a specialised job, this part, uh, yeah. Mickey. Uh, <laughs> What's your name again? <laughs> uh, no, we've yeah. got... So, uh, he's yeah, got mate, here, here's a couple of quid. You want to go the beers round yes, the pub? go for a walk. Uh, you can take a walk, all right? Uh, but, but, and this, this, of course, you know, everyone got very freaked out when they, it, yeah. it, it, it turned out that the love affair hadn't played on... Everlasting love. Everlasting love. But, it, but prior to 1967, it was the n- absolutely normal for... Young groups coming in, making their first record, to be not playing. They might use some of them, but not all of them. They certainly well, wouldn't be using a famous... the drummer uh, if they could av- at all avoid <laughs> it. Uh, and didn't, uh, I, I don't want to libel anybody, but isn't Jimmy Page said to be playing on... Yeah. Well, Jimmy uh, Page, Jimmy Page, some of the and, records, uh, oh, the King's and Big Jim Sullivan, yeah. and John Paul Jones, and, gosh, I've forgotten who the drummer was now. Clay Catini, probably. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And they were the absolutely standard unit that made all those records from Donovan to... Um, but to even Duke the crew, not only, I mean, Donovan's to, like what we call a solo artist. So yeah. All his players were yeah. session players. But a lot of those groups didn't play. No, Jimmy Page is, is so, I, think, I think we can say, safely, was the lead guitarist. But the drummer, we talked about this a while ago, the, the drummer is the really key issue, isn't it? And certainly was in those days. Cause, it it you know, always is. Because you know, the drummer is that you can't fix. Yeah, until they got a click track and a grid on a screen. We'll talk about uh, click track in a minute. But then, yeah, you couldn't really fix it. So if you have a, you you have a three, three hour session, you better hope that the drummer yeah. could hack it. Yeah. Because if he couldn't, yeah. you couldn't make anything else. Two things he's got to play in time. Uh, and he's got to sound good. And, and a lot of the sound on drums is not so much what the, the engineers can go to work on it, fine, but, but drummers have a sound. It's the way they play. Yeah. It's the way their kit's tuned. It's the way they hit them. That's what makes the sound. It's not really the engineers making the drum sound. It's the way the guy... It's uh, a kind of fingerprint, which is why, isn't it? Which yeah. is why in the sort of Motown studios they used to have the drum kit to set up and mic the whole time, didn't they? And well, they, 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 they never, half never those Motown it. records, they didn't even use the drum mics because there was enough spill. Uh, oh really? Uh, well, the drummer was playing you, loud enough in the corner yeah, that you're yeah, picking him up. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't really well, we need a, the drum mics. We had a piece in the last issue of Word about the making of Tutti Frutti, which was made in a room sixteen foot by twelve, I think. Yeah. And just had four microphones moved around to get the balance. I mean, once you move the drums into a separate room, in a booth, if you like, glass, you know, so there's no spill at all. Then, if the players like not really getting the right sound, then the engineers can fix that. But when it's in a when it's in a, a ensemble in a room with everybody else, you can't really because a lot of the sound is being picked up on vocal mic, you know. So, you, you know. Do I, you think we can tell 
Uh, with sons, I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, I remember interviewing Noddy Holder, and he was telling me about the making of the early uh, Slade records, and I was talking about the signatures, because what made them was not just the change of image and slightly different, simpler comp composition, but also the, the signatures, which were boot stomps and hand claps. Yeah. And he said, it went this great long thing about how they got that sound. They'd gone out into the stairwell of the studio they were in, in London, I think it was, and found that this was the perfect place to do it. And I suppose looking back, I mean, I always thought those records sounded fantastic, but again, I don't know if I'm over-intellectualising <laughs> this or over-romanticising it, because now, if, if I was making a record and I wanted some, some you know, boot stomps, you, Neil Brockbank, would simply press a button. Boot stomp button? But, yeah, I'm not sure I, I would, but... Other producers, sorry. Any other producer, what am I talking about? But um, the fine quality Brockbank would probably go out and do it in the corner. But does that... Do you think that you can have a different emotional reaction to those things that are synthesized. It's hard to explain, you know, because do you, if you simply, you know, create those sounds uh, synthetically, as it were, mm. do you think in any way we respond to them differently? Sometimes. Well, I'm going to give an ambiguous answer. I think, it's, I think, I think when you do things synthetically, if you really go to work, you can get a vibe. You yeah. Know, uh, 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 the, the type you're talking of. But yeah. the quickest and simplest way is to do the obvious, which is like go out to the stairwell, because it's almost guaranteed to give you a vibe. Yeah. You know, uh, so this kind of leads us like on to a question from uh, Paul Thompson, who says, uh, what makes a great recording studio? Is it to do with the techie stuff or more the location, the room and the atmosphere? Uh, you can buy the, the techie stuff. If you've got enough money, you can fill it with anything you like. But, but, but the atmosphere, of course, can't be bought. Uh, it, it has to be generated by the people who work there. So uh, the people who, who kind of designed how it was going to be, how people would be, where they would be sitting, you know, how the room was divided up for different functions, and then ongoing how the sessions were conducted, you know, this, this, this is what really makes people uh, give of their best when, when the atmosphere and everything is all right. And, of course, you've got to have really good equipment, but that's just money, you know. It's not, you know, you can read up any amount of... Uh, uh, stuff on the internet which will tell you exactly what equipment to buy and it's pretty obvious you know what's good and what isn't and uh, but no studios studios have to be have an atmosphere when you walk into them it's not like going to an office yeah. it's just not like going to an office it's not even like going to a TV studio or a radio studio it's like going somewhere where where you you're gonna feel uh, uh, comfortable and relaxed enough to, because it's very hard. Some, some, you know, when players have got something going at home, uh, I go, oh, I'm great. Look, I can do this. Bang, 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 bang. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, then, uh, and it's all working great for them in their bedroom. And then they go downtown, and all of a sudden they're in another environment, and there's guys behind glass, yeah. and there's like, there's pressure. you know, pressure, uh, 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 so 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 you've got to do something to take that pressure away. You know, my method is not to have any glass. Right. You know. Because in away. here you have no control no, no, no. room. You're, you're in the same room yeah, as the musicians. The no, no us a magazine, no, a no website, a, a podcast, a way of life. Wheels, you move them around to kind of shape the sound in the room. But essentially, you know, it's not... What are they talking about in the control yeah. room? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can read their lips. Uh, They're saying that drummer's sheet. <laughs> <laughs> He's up there in the control room. <laughs> 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 Did you play that right? Yeah. <laughs> but there's an interesting kind of cultural issue here because I, uh, Joe What's Boyd. His name again, Pete Best. <laughs> well, tell, him, tell him not to come back next time. But lovely, Pete. It's great, mate. Sounded brilliant. <laughs> Joe Boyd, the producer of Fairport Convention and Nick Drake and loads of people, REM, and so forth. Uh, he told me that he eventually just had enough of producing because he used to consider his function to be the person who listened and said, hmm, bit slower, bit faster, bit more of this, bit less of that. And whereas once you broke down the glass and so forth, he found himself surrounded by everybody plugging straight into the desk and, you know, instruments done one at a time. And the problem is that in that culture, everybody fights their corner. Mm. And that he found it very difficult to, you know, to hold on to the picture that they were trying to get that it was better to have one pair of ears deciding what it was... Yeah, absolutely. ...than 
Five pairs. You can't. You can't even even committee. The, even the best producers will find it tough, though, to be the only person in a room who thinks it's any good. What do you mean by that? Sorry. Well, I mean, if everybody's saying this is rubbish, you know, you, you, and, and you're the producer, you think I think it's quite good actually. Right. Or, or the other way around. Everyone's going, whoa, we did it! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whoa, slap, slap. You know. <laughs> High uh, fives. Uh, yeah, round the pub. Uh, wait, guys. I think you might have one more take in you. Yeah, in you, in you. Oh, that's so brilliantly diplomatic. In, tele- uh, in television, they always used to say... That one's really good. Yeah. You know, but when you've done something really badly in television, you've got it totally wrong. They just say, hair in the gate. Yeah. Can we of just course, do it yeah. once more? You know, it's the, technical. The, the technical excuse, where really they wanted you to get Sorry, it way we better. Yeah. <laughs> you never pressed the button. By the way, are we recording? It's a shame, because it was a classic. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, Red light is on. Yeah, all right. <laughs> so, you know, it would appear that one of the... Uh, probably the most important thing in a producer's armoury is tact. Oh, well, yeah. I, t- I mean, that's, that is what it's all about. The psychology of how you get... You know, whether it's a whether it's a, a, a brand-new band off the street or whether it's a difficult solo artist, you know, that's the whole job. And a lot of producers say that they do that before they even get to the studio. Like, all their production is done, and all they have to do when they go to the studio is sit back at the back of the room and go, yeah, that's the one. Right. You know, and, and because they've prepped up the artist to such an extent that once they get to the studio, there shouldn't be anything left to do once you get to the studio except execute the plan. Right. You know? But that doesn't appear to be the way that, um, you know, we, the, the accounts we get of rock bands making albums nowadays is yeah. that... Well, not so much, I don't mean nowadays, the last 30 years, is that pretty much they go into the studio on an appointed date and then start thinking about what they might do. And says so it's got a little bit of this. I think so those days are gone, really. Do you? I, I, thought, well, I, stuff, I think that's still that's, a U2 method, but they can probably uh, afford yeah. to do I mean, it. I, I, mean, I mean, I can remember working with new groups freshly signed to a big record deal where, uh, OK, we would, we would have listened to all the songs, but really it all started on day one you know, in terms of, like, how we're going to do it and everything. And and literally, it'd be weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks in a residential studio somewhere, you know... But people can't afford to do that anymore. No, 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 no. So I mean, no, no tell say, us about the residential studio uh, experience. Well, you just spend £100,000, you know, just know, on a group that you've never heard of. And would never hear of again. Possibly. Who's, who might probably have one hit, playing know. snooker most of the time. Uh, uh, yeah. Tennis. 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 Polo. Years ago, I used to work for The Cure, and uh, they'd hired Jane Seymour's house in Bath to record an album. And I used to go down there with uh, boxes of tape to deliver and that kind of thing. And I never saw them play a note. They were playing tennis the entire time. (laughs) And drinking. It's a lovely idea, The the Cure, somehow playing tennis. some gothic creatures (laughs) (laughs) flitting about. Dressed in blacks. (laughs) But that really is the thing that's gone, isn't it? The residential studio, it fascinates me, because I've been to a few of these, Rockfield and so forth. And I was talking to Laurie Latham for this feature. You know, Laurie said... The bands loved it because generally they lived in flats that were horrible. Yep. They had no money. Correct. Nobody to do their washing and all yeah. that kind of stuff. They and they were, they were loved s- the idea. Was s- kind of trying to fill out this whole thing for as long as possible, weren't they? Trying to keep it going. They, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It is. It's like a Shangri-La. I mean, uh, but also from the producer's point of view, he's got everybody out in Wales, if it's Rockfield or something. Everybody's out there. They, they can't go to the uh, all-night rave-up. Right. Yep. Uh, or the girlfriend isn't, you know, going to give them an acro. Yeah. They're going to be <laughs> somewhere else, or, or they're going to go out on the tiles and not come. You know, they're kind of all there. He's got them all there. If he wants a bass overdub, he's all he's got to do is walk down to the snooker room. And <laughs> <laughs> and very reluctantly, they'll be dragged <laughs> yeah, to the studio. Dragged, but they're yeah. all there on the premises, and 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 because they're being fed, you can you 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 can expand the working day in a residential studio to much longer than you could in. Uh, in, in a studio downtown in London or something. Right. You can you get more there. Okay, breakfast time is at 10. Uh, then uh, we're going to start at 12. We're going to work till 7. Then we're going to have dinner. Uh, and then at 8 o'clock, we're going to come back in and we're going to work till 2. 2 in the morning. Yeah. And Laurie uh, Latham's theory is nothing gets done between 8 and 2 o'clock in the morning. Nothing useful. That's, that's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> so I used to say it was after midnight. Oh, right. Uh, you had to spend three times as long to do anything 
significant. So that's the downside of the relaxing approach, isn't it? You know, the kind of everybody's got to be chilled. That's the problem. They, well, they do get pretty chilled in a residential studio, and, it's not, and there are no distractions. That's, what, that's why the producers like it. And it's cheap, right? relatively speaking, because... Right. Because they were really those the days of the residential studios really gone. But back in in the eighties when I was working there a lot, a residential studio in the country was roughly the same price as an equivalent studio in London. Right. Because uh, of the. But that's getting yeah, a lot of Caesar salad thrown in as well. A lot well, of isn't Caesar it? salad. Yeah. A lot of bacon Huge amount of lasagna. Uh, bed and breakfast. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, something's happened. Ask a technical question. Just uh, this is a very obvious question, but in my experience of going to studios, once you got to uh, an era where you could, as, uh, as you say, physically see the track. The track is put up digitally, oh, oh, yeah. and you can see it um, as a sequence of, of uh, sound waves. Yeah. That, to me, uh, seemed to change the attitude towards recording enormously, because the t once you can see something, you see the holes in it, you see the spaces, and the tendency is to fill the spaces. Do you think that's... Uh, is that uh, a uh, well, uh, Tanita Tickerham told me she sacked somebody for doing that very thing, because she, they, they were making one of those records, and sitting around screens, this, uh, uh, this is the way she told it to me, and, and, then, and it was like the engineer, producer and her, and they were sitting behind all these screens, and the producer said, it's a bit there, no, nothing going on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's put a tambourine. He pointed at it, he pointed put at it, it. Oh, it's a bit there with nothing going yeah, on. Yeah, put a syndrome. <laughs> and, and she, it was out on his ear. She was obviously grooving, you know, to what she was hearing, and she, she, she said, that's brilliant. That's, I love that idea. Well, we've seen very similar but, things happen in, you know, in magazine publishing with desktop publishing. It's, it's a bit similar because everybody can see the whole process yeah. on, on, on the screen, you know. And it's very easy for, you know, it, this used to be something that only designers knew about. You know mm. what I mean? They did their work and then you looked at it and said, great or, or not so great. Whereas now you're there throughout the whole process and, you, and you're... You know, your uh, flexibility to tinker is huge. Yeah. You know, that's what tends and, and, to happen. And that's another thing, that the, 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 uh, the opportunity for, for kind of experiment, this whole idea of po possibility, must also be a terrible problem. Because before, if finished. you were... Yeah, if you were... I'm trying to think of an example. If you were Paul McCartney and you, you, you'd written Penny Lane and there was a, an instrument that you could hear that would provide the signature at the middle, and you eventually, after a fair amount of thought and catching it on the radio, decided it's whatever it was, the piccolo trumpet. Then you go in and say, can I have a piccolo trumpet, please, on my track? But now you presumably sit there and go, oh, it'd be nice to have something there. What can we have? And, of course, the producer, not the uh, very, very discerning, uh, finely edited... <laughs> Master human, Brewer. Master Brewer, Neil Brockbank. <laughs> but these uh, substandard Johnnies out there at the field calling themselves... Those guys would press a series of buttons and go, how about that, or that, or that, or that? And you can yeah, just... Yeah. I mean, it's like John Leckie once told me... Uh, well, this is very well documented about the, <laughs> his first two weeks making the famous follow-up to Stone Rose's first record. Mm -hmm. Well, you know Sawmills. Sawmills. Sawmills is an amazing... Amazing! Uh, you've probably been there. I'm sure. An incredible studio. Oh, you can up, only go by boat. Right? Right? Yeah, in, in, <laughs> on the right in, in, time. At the right time. Which <laughs> <laughs> is perfect. It's perfect for a group like the Stone Roses. You just don't want them to escape. No. <laughs> Apart from chaining them to a radiator <laughs> to make sure they do some work. This is a brilliant idea. Yeah, yeah. They're actually beached for, for periods of 18 yeah. hours at a yeah. time. They can't get off. Between tides. Between tides. <laughs> Help! We've got, to, we've got to finish the single before the tide goes down. And Manny Mountfield will be <laughs> training his way across the edge. But anyway, he said that John. Uh, Squire had spent something like two weeks just ordering equipment to be sent to sawmills. That's got to be expensive, and a lot of that's by boat, incidentally. <laughs> um, from London, different amplifiers, just yeah, because yeah. he obviously uh, hadn't quite arrived at an idea for the songs, so he thought he'd start with an idea for the sound of what the songs might be like if he'd actually written them in the first place. <laughs> so, so the capacity, the latitude for procrastination is absolutely unbelievable, or, or, costing £1,200 a day. You know? uh, they have something in the modern recording world called the undo button mm. which never existed mm. uh, so so when you when you when you've got a guitar solo on tape yep. and you go i can do better than that and the producer goes can you he says, yeah i can i can do better than that I said, all right drop him in you know by that technical jargon but that means it's play the song when it gets to the solo start recording That's on right. the guitar Dro track, drop that bit in, yeah he'll play it and then when it gets to the end of the solo i want you to stop recording before that other bit comes in on yeah, yeah, yeah. really good which yeah. right. don't, don't yeah. wipe that don't, so, so don't wipe that bit don't yeah. wipe that bit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so mr guitarist goes i can do this you know so <laughs> they drop in 
uh, erasing what was there before, uh, and the guitarist proceeds to do rubbish. Yeah. You know, so the producer's now got a problem. He, you know, he doesn't want to tell him it's complete rubbish because he knows he's got to get it out of him. Yeah. By hook. So but he can't he, admit that he's <laughs> erased the original. There's no undo button. Yeah, so yeah. what was there originally is now lost. Okay, you could have gone through a complicated procedure of offloading it onto other tracks, but nobody ever bothered with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so now he's got to go through a series of performances. Now the spotlight's really on, you know, because he's got to deliver this. And 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 when they start recording, just before the solo starts, they have to choose the moment. They go bang in, right? It's recording, right? Listen to the solo, bang out. We're not recording. A succession of those in and out points would build up on the tape, so it would like never be in exactly the same place each time. So all of, well, this is dreadful with a vocal when you're trying to, you know, drop in to record between two syllables. You know, which yeah. you do routine. I can't which, believe which I people used to do, do it. Do. I used to do it all the time without the safety net of the undo button. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, of course, you do what you like. You just rub everything off. doesn't matter. Because you can bring it all back. Because Dusty again. Springfield... Nothing's ever... Brian Ferry was horrified when I told him this. I said, I said, of course, you know, um, yeah, I was talking, I was like, he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm just doing the backups. I'll see to or window. And uh, I just do the backups, uh, archiving and stuff. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, well, it's digital, you know, it's like computer. We have to back up everything every day, you know. And he realised that Everything that we'd done, whether it was good or not, was going into the ether. It was effectively was there. there forever, you know, unless they burn it, you know. So it horrified him that all the all the um, that, that what was saved in the end wasn't just the final product. It was the whole story of how yeah, you yeah, arrived yeah. at the final. And, the, and there's two, in place on two interesting things. <laughs> <laughs> two interesting aspects of that that I, I, I came across that um, that I've been shown around the EMI archive out at Hayes, mm -hmm. where they just pretty much keep everything. And so that used to mean that, you know, Pink Floyd made a record and they gave you the, the finished master tape. Yeah. Now, people are turning up with hard drives and saying, that's everything we did. Yeah. And they own it forevermore because they, you know, if one of these groups turns out to be the Beatles of, you know, mm -hmm. 20 years' time, they're going to want to put out an anthology. It's very, archiving is very tricky because hard drives are problematic. I mean, you can put a whole artist's career output on a single hard drive now, which is, you know, it's going to be the, the size of a book. Yeah, yeah. You know, whereas that would have been racks mm. and racks. Yeah. And probably is. You put that in as an archive, you come back to it ten years later, it probably won't work. Yeah, because your technology will have moved on. Well, not only right. that, but because the platter, the kind of revolving platter on a hard disk, and the, that all needs to be in, in, in use, otherwise it just seizes up. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you so this would be a great relief uh, to Brian Ferry. Uh, yeah, well, exactly. So if you've got <laughs> your stuff, if you've got <laughs> stuff on our archives on hard drive, then every year you've got to get it out, read the whole hard drive. Well, nobody's doing that, are they? Uh, well, I think they should be. Because, uh, <laughs> it's not I, so bad the, on an optical disc. In but. these straightened times, I don't think they are. Any yeah. they, but the other thing about the, that Laurie Latham told me, which really interested me, is that. Um, as soon as you had total recall on oh, desks, yeah. record companies would come into the studio when you were nearly finished mm -hmm. and say, go on, play as it. And so you play it. And they go, OK, have you got a version with the vocal a bit more or a bit more drums or whatever? And they knew you had that. Mm -hmm. And so record companies and people mastering and so forth and remixing are involved far earlier in the process, aren't they now? Well, the, the, the first uh, desk with total recall, the SSL... Uh, uh, mixing desk was marketed not at studios but at record companies. Oh, really? Yeah, this was the breakthrough. So they marketed it. They said, uh, "We've got a mixing desk, and if you if you're using facility with this mixing desk, you could call in from the office and order up these changes days later." Oh, really? Because, because um, uh, with a conventional analog recording system, which it all was back then. It's a big fuss to redo a mix. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a huge, you know, it's quite almost impossible. Yeah. You know, it's a one-off performance, the mix, just like any other. Uh, but the SSL mixing desk put certain things in place, which meant even though the, the assistants had to put in a huge amount of effort scribbling down settings on other equipment, that it would be possible to bring back the most complicated 48-track mixes on another day and have them sound pretty much exactly the same. And then once they did sound exactly the same, lift one fader to, re to, to lift the harmonica in the bridge. <laughs> yeah. 
three DP. Which is the crucial manoeuvre that turns it into a hit. And, and that meant that the person in the record company office could listen to his playback and think, mm, I think the harmonica should be louder in the... Because he likes that uh, feeling, uh, doesn't he? Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, 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 so all of a sudden, the record labels were calling up studios going, do you have SSL? No. Ka-ching. Right. Move on to the next. And so, so SSL just went from a base of nothing to being the only desk, only story in town within... Two or three years. Oh, extraordinary. Um, so, I, I remember another extraordinary uh, innovation, well, certainly I'd never seen it before, was when I first went to a studio where I heard a, a playback of, a, of some massive sounding record. Of course, everything sounds incredible in a studio with great walls and yeah. the most expensive uh, speaker equipment. And then on the desk in front of them, I think they all do it now, is a little tiny transistor radio speaker. And they say, let's just see what it might sound like on the radio. And that's the real acid test, because you can be completely mesmerised by even the most terrible music if it's beautifully produced in that environment. They've always had small speakers. I think they probably have. uh, uh, But they don't really represent what it sounds like on the radio. Why don't they? Well, because uh, when you when you go through FM or AM transmission, there's a whole bunch of other stuff. A station like Capital will be compressed. They compress it. Oh, yes, the top right. on it. Yes, that will. Yeah, it's true. Uh, uh, there's loads of other things that are happening. In fact, you used to be able to get. We used to you, you, in a suitcase. You used to be able to get a, a radio transmitter and receiver that you could set up uh, in the studio. So you play the mix through the transmitter and go and sit in the car with no, the receiver. Play actually it. transmit AM oh, that's or FM into your car in the car park. Right. That is... Uh, which, of course, I think iTrip does the same Really going the uh, extra mile. Absolutely. So I've got a, fir- I've got a question uh, from Andy Mooseman, who wants to know, and I know you don't have any truck with this voodoo, uh, but is the use of auto-tune the death of the real vocalist? How widespread is the use of auto tune? I saw somebody, there was a question and answer thing in one of the, I think it was in Metro, where some pop star was, you know, this came up and he said, I hate anything that isn't an ironic use of auto tune. <laughs> and what is an ironic uh, use of it? <laughs> well, it's when somebody who can't sing in tune is deliberately made to sing. But I think, well, I think what he means is cause, because auto for the you know, people who don't know about this, auto tune is, is a box of digital tricks where you can sing out of tune, and once the, the, your singing has gone through the digital box of tricks, comes out the other end in tune. Okay? So, but I mean, nearly all modern pop records use this. So all you know, you're hearing it all the time. But if you you can abuse the settings to the point where it's satirical, it, be- <laughs> it becomes <laughs> an effect. Well, like uh, for instance, well, what's that? There is a the first right, example yeah. of it was that share record. Uh, uh, believe, believe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where believe. it had yeah. a slight pitchy wobble on yeah. it. Brilliant that, record. That was done with the auto tune by abusing yeah. the auto tune. Well, that's great. We love you know using equipment for stuff. But it wasn't designed to be used. Right. Plus, we know she can sing. Uh, yeah, we, well, yeah, she's one of the greatest backing vocalists of all time. But, um, Ooh, they're very catty. Nothing wrong with being a great backing Mark. vocalist. Uh, um, faint praise has become much fainter than that. No stranger to gold stuff. Um, but but auto tune. No, I, I think it's useful used sparingly. I I, I, I think it's. Um, I would be very depressed if I was reaching for it all the time. No, sure. I would. I would say, well, why? Else, why isn't this person singing a tune? What are they doing? But isn't the fact in a recording? Studio, isn't the fact that in the record if, business, you know, I can get my mum to do to sing out of tune. But isn't isn't the, isn't the truth in the record business that if there is a piece of technology, it will be used excessively? Because it will appear to provide insurance of some kind. Well, a really, good exa- a really good example of that, I think, is the, cl- is the, is the, cl- is the click track. The click track. Well, that's the, I mean, that's something you're recording thing. But now, the explain the click go track to for the benefit of people who might Neil, not explain understand. explain click Okay, track. so before there was digital recording, when we were still on analog, click track would be used just to keep the drummer in time. It's a metronome. It's a metronome. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, but and it's playing a, in his ear. Unlike a metronome, which just go tick, tock, 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 tick, tock. It would it would have some musical. Usually, you'd make it have some musical value, like it would be a tambourine or a, a cowbell or, or something that had you know, like it was having a percussionist yeah. who's perfectly in time, playing along with the band. Yeah, so yeah. you feed that to the drummer's headphones, 
Uh, maybe not to everybody else. It's just so the drummer can play the same tempo all the way through. Fine. You're making a disco record. That's exactly what. But we when want. you see when that gets translated to the <coughs> stage, and you know anybody listening will know exactly what I mean. Because the number of times you go to a concert and each song is counted in by a drummer, clicking four times on his sticks or whatever, yeah. and then they go into the song. Now he's just clicking in time to a click track, playing through Could his be, yeah. through his um, yeah. monitors in his yeah. ears. And the reason he's doing that most of the time is because they are uh, sequencing into a load of pre programmed computer um, um, sound bed, which is obviously recorded at a certain speed and can't be very yeah, 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 speed. Yeah, yeah. If you very speed it, it, it would be out of tune. And so, therefore, the possibilities of hearing a song done differently are massively limited. I mean, you're like, the likelihood is, and obviously I appreciate a lot of people quite like it this way, that you're going to hear something almost exactly approximating what you heard at home That's before you left want. on a record. Well, everything's been in, all pop records have been in time since 1980. You know, that's a great interesting. With a few notable exceptions, all pop records have been what? in tune since about 2000. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, uh, so, don't you wish, for, for the sake of Pete Wiley of War Heat, for example, that the the, the, the auto tuner had been invented a little earlier? No, but then, <laughs> is that un- this is very interesting, particularly, particularly in terms of rhythm, because I think you said to me that you know rhythm sections should speed up or slow down because well, that's sort question, of what they yes, do. If you're doing the kind of material I do, right? You know, which is song based. So, so, so if you're doing, if you're making a disco record, the you last don't want thing you that. want, yeah, yeah. you don't want that. If you're making the kind of records I make, which song based, you know, uh, uh, with with often the person singing the song having written it, or, or not even if that's the case. But I think there's times when it when 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 it goes into the chorus, it should speed up a little, and then it, when it gets to the, some release it, after the solo, it should back off tempo wise. And I think that really good musicians do this. They don't even know they're doing it. Right. It sounds good when they do it. Yeah. Uh, 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 and I like that kind of music, but that's ab- that's missing, you know, right. from the modern Cause, scene. Because it contrasts that with uh, the Ricky Martin oh, yeah. "Living La Vida Loca," which first is the record first the record made entirely in the box, as they say, yeah. made on Pro Tools. Yeah. You know, where um, the producer could could it's move. A s- it's a fantastic record. Right. I want, yeah, brilliant. Record. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's horses for courses. That for a so you mean what that no. Instrument was used on no, the no, What they mean is that the, they no made the demo in Pro Tools, didn't they? They kept yeah. it in Pro Tools. Uh, they 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 didn't uh, externalize any of the sounds from the computer. So so a lot of people who are recording on computers, they'll still externalize them to process them through conventional mixing desks and conventional uh, compressors, analog equipment, and such like. When you talk about mixing in the box, it means you don't do any of that. All the processing takes place on the screen inside the computer. And at the end of the process, the system just renders a file. There's no, ex- nothing going on external yeah, yeah. to the computer. That's but it's exciting in its own way. But it doesn't sound. You know, to me, record. to me, not a musician, not a producer. It doesn't sound as if it's been in the open air at all. No, <laughs> no, no, no. It sounds. But it doesn't make it any been... less great. No, I, mean, I just it's don't. A genius I just record. wouldn't. I just would have no fun making that record. Right. You know, I can't imagine it, it being a. Very Go back cold. to what you were saying about about the, the 1980 being the, 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 up till that point, or after, or after that point, all records were in time, and it was with a few notable exceptions. And I just, <laughs> I well, know. I mean, well, there's always exceptions to the rule. After 1980, most people were either using drum machines, which by definition are in time, yeah, or they were their drummers were following click tracks, yeah, uh, because they needed to compete with drum machines. So after 1980, there was no. Uh, rock and roll swagger in the rhythm section where ah, we'll get a bit faster yeah yeah, 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 yeah yeah you know uh, uh, that that kind of went out uh, and, and so even rock records sound like disco records. yeah because because everybody was all of a sudden because the drum machines had come in and it was an era of you know the, the fashion of the day was synth pop and all that stuff the rock people didn't want to be seen to be 
falling behind the time. Yeah. Uh, heaven forbid, you know, no, we want some of that, you know, even though we're making a rock record. We right. Want, we want... A bit of precision. Of bit of, yeah, nothing wrong with that. bit of uh, professionalism. And, and, um, and, and it, it got to the point... Where, but what the, the trouble with it is, from my point of view, is I believe the public get re-educated. So the public get used to n never hearing anything that isn't like strict tempo, bang, 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 from the start record to the finish record. They also get... They get attuned to hearing everything being on pitch. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that if you make a record which doesn't do one of those two things, it doesn't sound like a contender on the radio because the radio people go, well, hang on a second, those, those scar horns, uh, <laughs> yes. are they... <laughs> are those scar horns, I hear? <laughs> uh, uh, Can we lose the scar uh, horns, please? Uh, you know, people, because Where's people, the undo button? People, people find it disturbing to listen to anything that isn't... Well, you know, the, that's, it's just the, the, it's the counter argument that is, is in Joe Boyd's uh, book, White Bicycles. Very good book. He talks, uh, there's one chapter about, about sound production. And he makes this point, which I, I thought was so telling. He says he's sitting in an all bar one mm -hmm. and uh, he's waiting for, to have a drink with somebody. And they're playing um, some, I think it's a Coldplay record. And he said, people come in. Now, obviously, that's a bad example because people are familiar with Coldplay and um, it's a modern record. And therefore, you assume if you're hearing a modern record, it's made the modern way. But he said, when they put on um, Buena Vista Social Club, um, the people were walking into this place and looking around, trying to see where the band was. And he said, this was a subconscious thing. I mean, admittedly, they, they probably weren't familiar necessarily with the music. But the one thing about the music that they were getting, consciously, was it had appeared to be made by live musicians who were actually in all bar one. They were looking around for them, you know. I mean, that's a very, very, uh, very artificial division, I suppose. But I, I think there must be some truth in that. Mm. that. There must be, I mean, obviously, if a record, a record is a recent record, um, unless it's made by someone like yourself or it's a Bob Dylan record, um, you know, one of the things about uh, Must Be Santa, one of the tracks <laughs> on Bob Dylan's Christmas record, played every day by Danny Baker on his London radio show, was whether you like that song or you don't, that song is made by a bunch of people going mad simultaneously yes. in the studio, and it's an incredibly infectious sound. And um, and I thought that was quite interesting that the that there was a, something immediately, whether consciously or unconsciously, you could tell about the way records are made because Buena Vista Social Club, of course, was made by real musicians playing around a microphone at the same time in the same room. Yeah. What you're hearing is the ambience of that room. Well, that's certainly my romantic view of it. I don't yeah. know how true it is. That's a terribly yeah. romantic thing to say, but do you think there's any truth that, 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 that people can, on some level, immediately feel that they're hearing a record that was made... Uh, they're hearing a performance, if you like, rather than a record? There is a difference. I don't know, because I'm so... You know, so, it's so my job to be able to tell the difference. I don't know what other people... whether other people can. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, are you, often, you know, the public can tell the difference. With, sometimes you can say, public can tell the difference without knowing what the difference is. You know, in fact, they can, they know that this is a certain kind of record, this is a certain kind of record. If you say, what's the difference between them? I say, well, I don't know, but I know they're different. Right. Yeah. You know, it's about as far as it goes. You know. So, Goldtop... Yeah, you're moving on from here. We are. Because uh, you can't get the building any longer. Yeah. You, you turned what seemed to be a fairly, un fairly unpromising place into a, in a very congenial place where you've made a lot Thank of terri terrific records. Where are you going next? I don't know yet. Are you looking well, for I'm, a home? I'm looking for We'd a like home. We'd like to advertise for a Absolutely. home. Absolutely. I'm looking for a home. And, uh, and w you know, we didn't have a studio before we had Goldtop. We used to make records at studios wherever we needed one. And then uh, the location came up, which was too good, so fantastic, right on the stripping court, Chalk Farm, that I thought, ah, now it's time to have a studio. Because a lot of studios were closing, yeah. and analogue studios, the type of studios that we needed, weren't there anymore. So we thought, well, let's get a studio before it's all over. Um, now it's over, we go back to where we were before. Uh, and, and we will start Goldtop up again if and when we come to a location that's right. You know, which by that I mean not one that's on an industrial estate right. out <laughs> on the North Circular. So and what sort of thing are you looking for? An old church? Or I'm a looking for like a, the vibe of... The, the, even before we had this place, we said the vibe was a bit like a sort of... Uh, village hall, oh, right. like a large scout hut, wooden floor. <laughs> Very much like large, yeah, uh, um, yeah. and and that's really the model, you know. So it's it's not like a it's corporate. Exactly how this place it's not feels like a corporate it. recording studio with like 
fancy plastics and chrome, it's like a funky floor. So it's a funky floor. It's really <coughs> if anybody's got access to a funky scout hut yeah. that, they, that they don't know what to do with, about, uh, we can yeah. put you in touch with Neil Brockmack. About, yeah, about 500 square feet. Fine. Okay, we'll, we'll find you one, Neil. Well, thank you. Meanwhile, thank you very much for having us. Well, thank you for coming. It's been brilliant. It's, it's been an absolute it, it's, delight. It's been a delight. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.